Today's reading is from Philippians 4, 2 through 9. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thanks again, Lee Eric. Good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. Uh, Good to be with you. We're kind of uh, pulling things together after a uh, kind of a water from a fire hose uh, congregational report uh, that happened uh, between services today. If, if you weren't uh, able to be here for that, would invite you to go on to uh, ChristPres.org, probably, you know, maybe give it a couple of days. You can go on, hear that full report. It's about an hour, give or take. But um, what I'd like to do before we get into Philippians is, first of all, to invite you, as we always do, if you're at the end of the row, to take the black notebook, fill it out, If you're a member, if you are here for the first time, we'd love to hear from you. Just get a record that you're here. It lets us know you were here. It also gives us indication of how we can serve you. Uh, So we'd appreciate if you do that. Pass it on to the person next to you. And and then a couple of key announcements uh, this week for our community before getting into Philippians. First, um, if you're looking to connect with a few friends or maybe you're new to our community. Every year for the fall, we do temporary small groups, uh, which certainly have the option and and are are often encouraged to become permanent small groups, but they start off as temporary, so there's no pressure felt. There's no sort of super long commitment where you dedicate the rest of your life to strangers. Um, But it's this year going to be a four-week gathering and conversation of people who are connected to CPC. This is for you if you've been here for a long time. This is for you if you're brand new. Um, As a larger church, we believe it's very important uh, as much as possible for us to cultivate environments where everybody has the possibility of five or more friends here that you share your life with, that you end up sharing your life with, who end up knowing your story, you end up knowing theirs, and you can live before the face of God together. And so connect groups are our main environment for that. And so if you have not registered for one, I want to highly encourage you to do that. That's happening uh, coming up here in the fall around early October. Uh, And then uh, lastly, parents, if you are like me, uh, there are not enough hours in the day. There's so many things that compete for uh, our time and and, uh, our energies and our focus and our attention. And sometimes it feels like we're doing so many things mediocre. We're not doing anything well, uh, including, you know, building into the lives of, of our kids. And so our youth ministry next Sunday after this service is going to have a fall kick off lunch where parents can join youth leaders 
and other parents for discussion about what it could look like to find some healthy balance in the coming school year with family, school, work, community, faith, and all the other things. So I want to invite you to that lunch, and you can bring a friend uh, who is also stressed out with you. Um, So those things being said, uh, it is now time to dive into the, the marvelous, hopeful text of Scripture that was written from jail. Uh, by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Today we're continuing our series that we're calling The Battle Within, Uh, and today we're going to talk about worry, which is a little bit of a a continuation of last Sunday's message on anxiety. The two are sort of compatible um, dysfunctions uh, that are characteristic of the human heart. So uh, it's so pervasive, though, we felt like we needed two sermons instead of one. So last night, uh, Patty and I got to have dinner with yet another uh, couple that has uh, transitioned from our old home of New York City to Nashville. It just keeps happening. And we're having all these lovely meals. And as we're pulling up to their new home, uh, we observed that their boys were out you know, in the street, just moving around on scooters, riding bikes, enjoying freedom. And when we were seated around the dinner table later that night, I, I just made a comment uh, you know, that, that, that essentially communicated this, how odd it was to drive up to your house and actually see your boys or any kids playing out in a neighborhood. Because that, that's something that I used to do all the time. I have virtually zero memories of my childhood of hanging out inside when it was nice outside. I, we were outside, we were doing kickball, kick the can, we're getting in fights, we're, we're doing whatever, but we were not in the house. And, and, and things have radically shifted. You know, Shelley indicated this. You know, we're, we're so screen-bound now that there's really no reason to leave home because, because 80%-ish of our relationships are conducted through a screen, right? And, and we live in the world of, 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 you know, promoting our brand and likes and, and, and views and those sorts of things. And we've sort of lost that sense of, of FaceTime. But the other dynamic that, that, that psychologists talk about is what you could call helicopter parenting. At some point within the last few decades, uh, and, and, and it started with the whole, you know, milk carton thing, like a child would, would go missing, like somebody would get kidnapped, and then they'd put the child's face on the milk carton. And, you know, if, if you see this child, you know, call this hotline, call this number, you know, devastating experience that, that, that no parent should have to endure, that no child should have to endure. And, and yet, it, the, the, the awareness of, of of horrible things like kidnapping grew so much that, that, that parents began to, to basically live a philosophy out with their children such that their eyes are on their children all the time, 24-7, because of the dangerous world that we live in. It's easy to sympathize with that. But a website uh, called parent.com writes this about the worry dynamic that has now come into parenting, especially helicopter parenting, And it says this, worry can push parents toward taking more control over their child's life in an attempt to protect them. Worry can drive parents to take control in the belief that they can keep their child from ever being hurt or disappointed. So I felt this acutely last weekend when we dropped our oldest daughter off to college, and, and she is currently... 358.2 miles away from where I stand right now. And how good it was 
thanks to a media team that, 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 that uploads the sermon right after the 11 o'clock service every th- Sunday, thanks to their initiative, Patty and I were able to listen to Richie on the way home. And I can't remember a whole lot of times in, in the last five, ten years where I've felt more pastored than I felt listening to Richie Sessions preach, uh, and as he preached about the affliction of anxiety, talking about this knot as a 40-something-year-old man, he still wakes up every morning with a knot of anxiety in his stomach and this foreboding feeling that the sky is going to fall, and it's a vague feeling, but it's connected to the fact that we live in a broken world. And, and, and as I'm listening to Richie, my friend who I respect and think so highly of, I'm thinking, I am not as alone in the world as I thought. Because I wake up every morning with that same foreboding feeling that the sky is going to fall. I wake up every night, virtually every night at three o'clock in the morning, and, and, and my mind starts racing because I'm a nervous type. And, and, and when I think about my daughter in college, I think, you know, is she safe? Is she going to make friends or will she be lonely? Will boys stay away from her? Will she keep that commitment that she made to me at age three that she will never go out on a date until she is 40 years old? (laughs) You know, there really are, insomnia happens to us, anxiety, worry happens to us, that waking up with the foreboding, you know, knot in the gut happens to us because we know that there are no guarantees, there are no control mechanisms that can give us complete assurance about the economy, about health, about whether or not our kids are going to turn out the way we want them to, or how people respond to a sermon, for example. Did you know that most pastors shame themselves most on Sunday afternoon? Not because they said something wrong, but because they said something in such a way that somebody might interpret it in a way that they didn't mean to say it. So my two older pastor mentors, Scotty Smith, Tim Keller, both have been very generous with me uh, at various seasons of my life, and and both have said separately to me this, you will preach sermons, Scott, you will preach sermons, and somebody's going to come up to you after that sermon, and they're going to say, I love you for that, and then the next person's going to come right after them and say, I hate you for that. One person's going to say that transformed my life. The the, the next person is going to say that ruined my life. And then the next person in line is going to say, I'm joining the church because of that sermon you just gave. And then the next person is going to say, I'm leaving the church because of that sermon you just gave. And, and, And all of it is about sort of interpretive grids. Like, I've got control over what I say, but I have no, no control over how you filter it, how you prejudge me before I say what I say, how you post judge me after I say what I say. I have no control over that, and it unnerves me because I love it when people like me, and I hate it when people don't. You know, as a public person, like Richie, I I walk around with this insecurity, you know, what if I blow it? What if, you know, I say something in a meeting and, and people leave and interpret me as being stupid or as being offensive? And I'm a passionate person, and so the likelihood as a passionate public person of people leaving and interpret me as being stupid or offensive is, is higher because I'm passionate. I speak with my feelings a lot of the time. 
I also fear this. I could say five poorly chosen words right now and it would put me out of ministry for the rest of my life. Just five words put me out of ministry the rest of my life. In 19th century politician John Lubbock put it this way. He's a guy from the UK. It's exhausting worry is. He says, one day of worry is more exhausting than a week of work. And so here we have Paul writing from prison with, with really no positive prospects about what's going to happen to him in the future. And he writes to the church at Philippi and, and, and crafts a letter that has become known over the centuries as the letter or as the epistle of joy. And you get a sense as you read through Paul, even in these dire circumstances, with no promise of anything really but death and, and you know, crucifixion. And, and you get the sense that he's, he's more lighthearted than he is heavy-hearted, that he's more worry-free than he is full of worry. And you start to ask the question, what is it about Paul? And, and, and this is what it is about Paul. He gives us a picture of faith that's completely realistic, that, that he, Paul, is not in control, never has been, never will be in control, which is the same that can be said of, of, of any of us frail, fearfully, wonderfully made, finite human beings. But the other thing that Paul uh, you know, demonstrates is a hopeful outlook in spite of that because of the promises of Jesus that are true, the future is bright. When you come to the table, if you end up at this one with me this morning, you will hear that yelled in your face. So I'm just going to warn that to you. I'm going to warn you of that, that the future can only get bright for somebody who's in Christ. So for the worrier in us, the things that trigger fear, the things that trigger anxiety, the things that trigger that foreboding knot in the stomach every morning when we wake up, what, we, what we've got in front of us is a lifeline. What we've got in front of us is comfort and assurance in a world over which we are not and never have been and never will be in control. So three questions we're going to deal with today. The first is, why do we worry? The second is, how do we deal with worry? And then the final will be, what about worst case scenarios? So first, why do we worry? We worry, Paul says, because we are unreasonable. We worry because we are unreasonable. We aren't thinking straight, he says. You know, verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to all. Specifically, what he is saying here is that, that our expectations about life in a fallen world must be governed by reality and not by pipe dreams. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote about how expectations really are everything in terms of the way that we interpret life, in terms of the way that we anticipate what's coming next. He says, expectations are everything. So imagine if I were to you know, announce to you that, I, that I've been preparing a room and it's a honeymoon suite, and, and I'm gonna sh I want to show that honeymoon suite to you so that I can get your opinion about it for all the lovely couples that will enjoy you know, their, their wedding night in this honeymoon suite. And, and, and you've got all this anticipation about what the honeymoon suite could be. Your imagination is going. And then I show it to you. I open the door, and it looks like a college dorm room. And, and, and you, you look at me, and you say, you know what? This, this, 
this is a major anticlimax in terms of what my expectations were because this place is a dump. This is, not, this is not a place that's fit to be a honeymoon suite. But if I tell you before I show the room that I have prepared a jail cell for the worst kinds of criminal, and then I open the door and I show it to you and it, it, it looks like a college dorm room, you're going to say, you're kidding. You're going to put one of the worst criminals out there into to a luxurious penthouse like this? And it's all about perspective. It's all about expectations. You know, our expectations are, are the filter through which we define our experiences. So, the word which I think was first coined by the New York Times, affluenza. Affluenza is a money sickness that many of us have to be aware of every single day lest it make us sick. Affluenza is a sickness like no other that, that, that creates unrealistic expectations that because I have resources, because I have these networks, because I am in these circles, I can purchase comfort in my life and I can purchase disaster away. I can avert and avoid the hardships that happen to common people, average people on the economic scale because I have purchasing power to, to purchase comfort and to purchase difficulty and grief and sorrow away. That's a false expectation. That's unreasonable to think that way. I love the reality of Shoei's story, right? I mean, we all know Stephen and Mary Beth and their whole family as heroes because of how they beautifully have been able to dance this dance and walk this tightrope between gut-wrenching, sorrowful rejection of the very worst things that can happen to a family, while also in the same breath, you know, Shoei affirming, don't get me wrong, I still regard myself as blessed. And you know what? I'm fighting against the things that, that tried to ruin us. I'm determined. We're determined to put more kids and more homes and so on. But there's this dance of reality and hopefulness and of hopefulness and reality that forces us to walk this tightrope. But, but affluenza oftentimes until tragedies that we cannot control, like the market crashing or the wrong leader getting elected or the diagnosis that comes. And, 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 and if, if, if we've gotten accustomed to purchase, purchasing comfort and purchasing all the hard things away, we feel like the sky is falling. We feel like the end of the world is about to come. But if we go back a few centuries and we read the Christian writers, you know, the Puritans, you know, Amy Carmichael, you know, John Donne, John Bunyan, you know, the sufferers, Jonathan Edwards, Aquinas, Luther, you know, David Brainerd, you know, all of these people, you see this common thread in all of their writings, they all expected suffering in this fallen world. Why did they expect suffering? Because they read their Bibles carefully. They allowed their minds to be injected with reason. They allowed themselves to think straight about a fallen world, and they, they faced it instead of denying it for as long as they could. And that way, when the, when the disaster came, they were more prepared, just as Paul writes as such a prepared man facing death all day long. Their perspective, Aquinas, Bunyan, Luther, and all the rest, was that 
Our greatest joy comes through sorrow. Our greatest peace comes through storms. The greatest fruit comes through pruning. Resurrection always comes after a death. And it can't be otherwise because that's the way things work in the kingdom. You know, John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress from a prison cell. John Donne, you know, one of, one of history's most celebrated Christian poets, wrote his best works while afflicted with the plague and, 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 and bedridden. You, know, you open up the Psalms and, and you begin to see very early that, wow, all of these magnificent prayers, all these magnificent hymns that God has passed on to us were written by people under duress, by refugees, you know, who were running for their lives by people who were declared enemies of the state because of their loyalty to God and had no religious freedom. You know, by all of these people who are suffering, and, and, and the Psalms come out of that duress with such reality on the one hand and such hopefulness on the other. So how do we deal with worry? You know, Paul paints a picture that, that, that could be compared with with what we'll call this morning spiritual dialysis. You know, we're, we're in Nashville, Silicon Valley of healthcare, right? So, so a lot of us, you know, know what dialysis is. So dialysis is a medical procedure in which the toxins in the blood are excommunicated from the body by the introduction of pure blood into the body through, through a transfusion, through a, you know, kind of the intravenous process. And, 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 and so toxins are removed as, 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 as other more pure, um, you know, substances come into the body. And so this is what Paul talks about when he talks about being reasonable. And, and he, he writes further on this in, in, in Romans chapter 12 when he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, you, there are some toxins up here in our heads what Richard Rohr calls stinking thinking. There's some toxins in the head that, that need to be excommunicated and replaced by what Paul refers to as whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, then think about these things. And when he says in verse 6, don't be anxious, the Greek word is merimnate, which means don't be fixated on, don't meditate on, don't obsess about, don't allow your life to be discipled by your fears and worst-case scenarios, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, that… This is, this is an important piece, too. You know, dialysis, in order to be affected, has to be repeated on a regular basis because the toxins, they keep knocking on the door and, and gaining reentry, and they have to continue to be pushed out of the system and excommunicated from the system on a regular basis. The same is true for the mind where transformation occurs. Yeah, it seems so basic. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Don't depend on a preacher to, to carry the freight of your discipleship and of your spiritual dialysis. You've got to go back over and over and over. Repetition, repetition, repetition. You know, this moment should be the exclamation point of a life characterized by going to Jesus and going to the Scriptures. Worry is a sign that I am allowing myself to be discipled by my fear instead of by Scripture. I'm fixating on the worst-case scenario instead of fixating on what's reasonable and true and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. So here's a modern 
example. So somebody sent me a link to a sermon by Andy Stanley, who's a, a Baptist pastor in Atlanta, a really huge church called North Point. And in this sermon, he took like a two and a half minute like sidestep, you know, like, let me talk to you a moment about where so many of you, he said, this is to his church, who are over the age of 45. He said, those of you who are over the age of 45, you are fixated on politics. Your eyes are not fixed on Jesus. Your eyes are fixed on politics and on the economy and on the good old days, whatever the good old days are. And you're panicked, he says. And, and then he says, knock it off because you're scaring the children. <laughs> you know, what he's getting at is there's this pervasive, you probably observed it, there's this pervasive tone of fear instead of faith that says if we don't fix the economy, if we don't protect our religious freedom, if the right person doesn't get elected, it will be the end of the world. And I know you don't believe that in your mind. I, don't, I know you don't believe that in your heart. But the anxiety all over your face is communicating that to the next generation. Is that how we want to teach our kids to follow Jesus? That there are kings and kingdoms that can actually supplant the plan of the king of kings. Do we really want to teach through our body language, through the phone conversations that they overhear? Do we really want to teach them that that's what discipleship is, to be afraid of what's around the corner, of what could be around the corner? Yeah, so Andy Stanley goes on to ask his congregation the question, do we really believe that one little man or one little woman has the power to thwart the plans of God. And he went on to talk about how Pontius Pilate was the most powerful man in, Judah. He, in Judea. He was the governor. And he looks at Jesus after, after Jesus talks about truth and he says, huh, what is truth? Crucify him. And then they crucify him. And then he's dead and he's buried. Game over. End of story. The powers against religious freedom have, have, have taken Christianity down by taking down its, its master. You know, like Tim Keller said, you know, put Jesus to death, it, it doesn't end his revolution. Put Jesus to death and it starts his rev revolution. You know, the only reason why we know who Pontius Pilate is, the only reason why we know who Herod is, the only reason why we know who Pharaoh is and, and the, 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 the oppressive you know, anti-religious freedom Nebuchadnezzar, the only reason why we know who they are is because of the story of Jesus. They're footnotes, Andy Stanley said. The, the, all these are footnotes in the story of Jesus. And do you know what? People are now naming their, their, their sons after Paul. They're naming their dogs after Herod and Caesar. I'm not kidding. His kingdom is not of this world. What are we modeling for the next generation? Are we modeling this? Some trust in princes, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Can we go there together? Can we? Yeah, no, maybe, not sure. I'm joining the church today. I'm leaving the church today. Really though, does one man, does one woman have the power to completely obliterate the plan of God who's sovereign over the universe and who plans every single one of our days before a single one of them comes to be? Really? Perspective. 
Think reasonably. We are not in control, but God is. And that's why Paul in Romans 8 can say, we are facing death because of no religious freedom in the Roman Empire, because Caesar is after us. We are facing death all day long, and in the same sentence, we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us, because I'm convinced that nothing in all creation, not even death, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 4, when he talks about how, you know, they're persecuted and struck down and afflicted, and what do they fixate on? What do they fix their eyes on? Paul says, we don't fix our eyes on the things that are seen. We fix our eyes on things that are unseen. So that even the very worst things that can happen now, in comparison to what lies ahead in glory, we can just look at those things as light and momentary. You know, like C.S. Lewis said, you know, heaven will work backwards one day and turn even agony into glory. You know, King David, you know, betrayed by his son Absalom, a refugee to, to King Saul. What does he do? In Psalm 42, he preaches a sermon to his soul. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. You know, David confronts. Here's what David does with his worry. He confronts a heart that is full of fear with a sermon to himself that is full of God. The character attributes of God are the answer to whatever we're worried about, whatever scares us, whatever gives us that foreboding nod in the stomach that God is infinite, eternal, unchanging in His being and His wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. No weapon fashioned against Him or His purposes shall stand, politically or otherwise. Worry is this. It is meditation on the worst-case scenario which raises a legitimate question, what about the worst-case scenarios? And that really depends on where we are with verses 3 and verses 4. Because Paul says that these things that he is writing is for people whose names are written in the book of life. And who are those people? The answer is in verse 4. It's people who are in the Lord. In the Lord, union with Christ. That, that, that those who have forsaken any notion that they can do anything to earn or to deserve or to put God in their favor, but have renounced that whole idea of self-salvation projects, you know, through religion or through sex or money acquisition or, or through the acquisition and exertion of power, those things are terrible saviors. And Paul's writing to people who've renounced that and, and, and who've put everything into Jesus who has died, who has risen, and who will come again, and who lived the perfect life and, and died the, the, the sinner's death and was separated from the love of God, separated from the love of the Father, so that, so that those who anchor their trust in Him would never have to experience even an iota, even a taste, even a drop on the tongue of the cup of God's wrath. He's talking to rescued people who are in the Lord. And, and I mean, this is where I, I guess I have to say that if, if you aren't in the Lord, if, if you're not one who identifies himself or herself 
as a dependent of the Lord Jesus, I have no hope to offer you. I have nothing hopeful to say to you about your worst-case scenario. Because the truth of the matter is that any worst-case scenario that we can come up with will seem like paradise in contrast to an eternity without Christ. But Paul says to those who are in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, entrust your fears, entrust your worries into the context of the story of God and recognize, say this so often, more for myself than I do for you, I promise, but recognize again and again and again, this is the dialysis, this is the way to get the toxins of worry out. Your very worst your very worst case scenario long term is resurrection and everlasting life. That's as bad as it will get for you in the end. I've told you about my friend Brian Maynard, who, much like Paul, faced very, very burdensome circumstances with what felt like a very, very light heart. You know, my friend Brian was diagnosed with a terminal cancer at the age of 35. It took him within a year. And I walked with Brian a good bit during that last year of his life. And you may remember this in my faith and work sermon I gave a while ago. You know, when I asked him what he looks forward to most about the new heaven and the new earth, he said, you know, he was a writer, he said, I look forward to not having writer's block anymore. What do you think? You know, just kind of joking, but not really. But I said, you know, what keeps you, I said in another conversation, Brian, what keeps you going? Like, your whole life that you had ahead of you, all of your dreams, all of your plans, it's just gone, poof. He's like, what are you talking about? He says, I am learning more, more than ever in my life to, to, to thank God for the good that I cannot yet see. You know, Kara Tippetts was, was another who, who found herself in, in similar circumstances as Brian, diagnosed as, as a young mother with, with a terminal cancer, married to a pastor uh, named Jason. And uh, she had a prolific, you know, blog uh, following, and she was a writer and and, and she wrote her last blog entry um, a day or two, I think it was, before she died and basically, you know, said, you know, click upload, click, click send after I'm gone to whoever clicked it for her for that last post. But here's what it said, the title, Letter to My Readers Upon My Death. Here's an excerpt. It seems impossible that this journey has finally come to an end, but I've gone and flown away to the land of no more tears. Won't you rejoice with me? My pain is gone. My fears are calmed. I'm in the sovereignly good hands of Jesus. He is my forever enough now. What bliss I am sure that I am enjoying. You know, what Kara was doing in her darkest season, in, in what would be the worst case scenario for just about anybody, She's inviting God's future into her present moment. Which flushed out the toxins of, of, of crushing, debilitating worry and fear with whatever was true and noble and excellent and praiseworthy. You remember Job, the consummate sufferer who lost everything and, and, and 
in a, a few days, you know, he reflects back on the disaster that happened to him, and he said, what I feared, my worst-case scenario, what I feared, losing all of my children, losing my business, losing my resources and property, and being left with, with a wife who, who's now an agnostic and no longer a believer. And I'm even alone in my own home and my faith, and my friends have abandoned me, and they've, they've criticized me instead of coming around me in comfort. What I feared has come upon me. And, and, and while living in the middle of that worst-case scenario, Job also says this. It reminds me a little bit of Shoei's story a moment ago. He also said this, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth and after my flesh has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. What Job was able to see by faith looking forward in time, we are able to see looking backward in time to a history that has already happened, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, which assures that Christ will come again. Everything sad will be made untrue. Every day will become better than the day before. Heaven will work backwards and turn even agony into glory. Your very worst long-term case scenario, very worst as one who is in Christ, is resurrection and everlasting life. Those words that Job said are words that you can say too. I know my Redeemer lives. And in the end, in the last chapter, which is the, the chapter that has everlasting duration, He will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, after my worst-case scenario has materialized, yet in my flesh, in my resurrected self, I will see God with my own eyes, how my heart yearns within me. How is this made possible? Because what Jesus feared most came upon him, the true sufferer, the true Job, who lost all of his wealth. Though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich, who was abandoned by his friends all of them. It wasn't just Peter. The Gospels say that every last one of his disciples abandoned him at his moment of, of, of suffering and sorrow on the cross. He lost the Father's smile. He lost the Father's intimacy so that the Father's smile would never turn away from us. Why did he do all this? So our most terrifying what-ifs would always end with resurrection and everlasting life. And so let's take this in. Think about these things as you now stand with me and as we prepare to rush toward the table of grace. This is our shared confession. It's a prayer of peace from St. Francis. Will you join me? Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Now, please remain standing. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect, to give thanks.
to confess to God and then I'll, I'll close this in prayer and lead us to the table in a moment.